And welcome, folks, to Here We Stand. I'm your regular host, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. It's June the 26th. This is the voice of the Republic and the Resistance. And it's fitting today that we start with that remembrance, that song. As a new civil war breaks out across the world, and especially across America, a war against freedom-loving people everywhere by the new slave power called the corporatocracy that has grown up over the last century or more, an absolute totalitarian power that all the governments of the world are bowing their knee to, but we, the people, are not bowing our knee to that power. This is our regular program, and not only is it a program to educate and update, but to prepare and arm, arm ourselves for this important struggle. Now, there's a big heat wave breaking out across North America, Turtle Island this week, as you know, insane temperatures across the Great Plains and now over the east, up to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And there's a other great heat wave building as well. We're turning up the heat on tyranny during July, and that's what the program is about today. July is a very important month for all of us, and we're going to get into that today, but it's especially important for me as well, because this July 15th is the 30th anniversary of how this whole struggle began for me. You can read some of that at murderbydecree.com, which has a lot of my books. All of our faithful listeners and comrades and friends of mine know that what this movement for the 30 years and more has cost me and many other people. But what's really quite interesting is that July 15th is not only the 30th anniversary of when I arrived in Port Alberni on Canada's west coast to start my ministry there that began the opening of this entire crime of genocide in Canada, which led to so much else. But July 15th is also the 10th anniversary of when our International Common Law Court of Justice trial began in Brussels that indicted and finally convicted Pope Benedict, forced him out of office along with three other cardinals, effectively deposed the Queen of England and created the basis of the Republic of Canada because of the conviction of the heads of church and state of planning and covering up the deliberate genocide of indigenous children that we've documented so well over the years. So this July date has pulls in my heartstrings, has great significance to me and many other people, a lot of whom aren't here anymore. I remember our seven brothers and sisters in our campaign to expose this crime, all of them killed, most of them in Vancouver or Winnipeg, because of bringing out this, this truth. Now, today, to honor that memory, and let's remember as well, there's a a wonderful quote, I forget who said it, but to remember is always a revolutionary act. And the reason that is, is because the only thing new under the sun is the history you never knew about. Everything we're watching now is just the way humanity has been over centuries, is that the technology is different now. But the same old game plan of a few governing and ruling and tyrannizing over the many is carrying on. And as part of our Canada Republic movement, it's our job to realize that, for example, looking at in Canada, the attempted rebellion in 1837 to throw out the British crown in Upper Canada or what's now Ontario, Lower Canada or Quebec, the patriots in both areas united and unsuccessfully tried to overthrow the British crown, what was called the family compact. Then, like now, a few families running the country, Tories and Anglicans and 
foreign corporate interests, just like now, that are running the entire nation. And one of the people who took up arms, my great-great-great-grandfather, Philip Bennett, in near Watford, Ontario, uh, he was a farmer and a blacksmith, and he joined the Patriots and then marched on London and York, which is now Toronto. And their attempt, though defeated, planted seeds, and we're seeing those seeds grow now. The failure of the Patriots to overthrow the British crown created the basis of all the trouble we're having now. It not only cemented this power of church and state, absolutist power in Canada, where the churches, the Anglican Church and English Canada, the Catholic Church, Church of Rome in, in Quebec, had absolute authority. They could then go on and build those death camps that they still call Indian residential schools, where the plan was to exterminate the remnant population of Native children who survived the smallpox genocide and wiped them out. Over half of them never came back from these death camps. A death rate higher than the death camps of Europe during World War II, where the average uh, death rate was 25 to 30 percent. In the residential schools, it was over 50 percent for over half a century. And I often say to people, well, how come in the universities in Canada, there's never any discussion of why that death rate never came down over half a century? Uh, my work and the work of our movement, they we're the only people who have ever posed that question. You can look until you're blue in the face, and you'll never see that question ever posed in the corporate media, in the academic world, in Canada, in the government, anywhere around the world. Because when you look at that, you'll see that it was deliberate. You don't have children dying off en masse a half a century apart according to the same cause unless it is deliberate. And the way they did that is they took the children who are healthy, put them in with the sick, and let them die off. And it was a common method of germ warfare. You can see all the evidence in murderbydecree.com, and that's what's really strange because people continually bleat these days saying, well, where's the proof? Where are the mass graves? You know, the problem is a lack of evidence. We've shown that the mass graves have been systematically destroyed by the RCMP and the churches over 30 years or more. It's like that quote from Bertrand Russell. He said, if you tell a man something that he already agrees with. You won't need evidence to convince him. But if you tell him something that disputes the way he looks at the world, all of the evidence in the world won't convince him. And that's the situation we're in. You know, people, men and women everywhere, can see through a lie quite easily, even if it's a, a, a lie generated by the state and by the church over centuries. They can see through a lie unless they have need of the lie. And Canadians still very much have need of that lie that, well, we didn't really try to wipe them out. Because by looking at that fact that, yes, we did, and we're still complicit in that crime, then we ask, have to ask, well, where did it come from? And where it came from, of course, and this is the irony, by the cementing of, into power of that church-state autocracy with the defeat of the 1837 rebellion, it allowed the genocide to happen. But ironically, it was... My exposure of that genocide and the movement that grew out of it, that has led to the present-day Republic of Canada. And we're going to get into that now. Republicofcanada.org. Now, that's Canada, K-A-N-A-T-A, and yes, the name Canada came from it. If you look up in the standard sources, they'll say, oh, it just means the village, but no. It's a Haudenosaunee Iroquoian word from the Eastern nations. And Ganata the case is pronounced G, Ganata actually means where the people sit as one around the council fire. It's a philosophy, a spirit of equality, because in the Eastern First Nations Longhouse, oops, sorry, 
Do not use that word First Nations. That's a government-created term. It's a corporate term, actually, uh, which means that there is no indigenous nation left. It's a corporation that the government made up in 1990, the term First Nation. So excuse me for using the term there, folks. I meant indigenous nation, and not even aboriginal, because aboriginal means not of the original group. Indigenous Eastern nations sat in the longhouse together as one. Nobody had authority over anyone else. Everyone had the right to speak, just like we do in our common law republic assemblies. You can speak. No one can interrupt you. Everyone has equal voice. That was the vision of really what the republic is. People share the land equally. And that was the original treaties that were signed between our people, our settler ancestors, and the indigenous nations. And that's the equality and liberty that we're reviving in the Republic of Canada. So history comes together with the crime and creates the new republic. And that's why we're here. Now, announcements, as some of you have read on our announcement about the show today. A hot July, turning up the heat on tyranny in July on the 30th anniversary of our struggle. Well, here are the update coming dates that you need to know about. This Friday, July 1st. Very important date. Two important things happening. We are launching a new television program on what's called Not.TV. That's N-O-T dot TV. Community-based media that just started up. Actually, it started some of the folks who were involved in the truckers' protest started it up. And we're now having a regular half-hour TV spot there every Wednesday and Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, the premiere show was starting this Friday, July 1st, on what they call Dominion Day, but of course we don't need to be dominated. We don't, there's no need for dominion over anything or anyone. We've renamed Dominion Day Ganata Day. This July 1st is the first show. It's going to be uh, at not.tv slash live. Go there this Friday, July 1st at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and you'll see yours truly introducing that live TV show it's going to be an educational format. It'll be news and views and analysis. We'll have guests on. Most importantly, we're going to be showing things from the front line of how the people in Canada are building our republic from the grassroots. Are now over 3,200 citizens with probably five times that number of people involved in what we're doing is now coming out more publicly. And we're going to be having up reports and updates from the front lines of the people doing that. One of those people is... Kevin Derbyshire, my new friend, he's a, a good man living down in Newbury, Ontario. That's in the southwest corner in the triangle between Sarnia, Windsor, and London. And that's district congressional district number 14, the 14th congressional district of our, four, our common law republic of Canada. And Kevin Derbyshire is running for a town council in uh, a councillor position um, in, in Newbury. Under the banner of the Republic, he's a sworn citizen and officer of the Republic of Canada, and he's running on a platform. And very soon you'll be able to see that platform. Uh, he's already campaigning actively. On July 1st, he's holding a rally there, 1 p.m. If any of you are down there, it's a very small town of only 400 people, but this is how the Republic is built in the grassroots from the bottom up. And Kevin's going to be campaigning there. I urge all of you to get down to Newbury, N-E-W-B-U-R-Y, Ontario, and here's another really interesting thing, and it's, it's synchronistic and quite wonderful. Kevin lives in Newbury, literally a 10-minute drive to the east of where my ancestors are buried. 
in south of Watford, the Annette Cemetery is near a place called Cairo, Cairo Crossroads. Right near there, there's a place called Annette Road, and that's because my ancestors came over in the year 1829 because the original patriarch, Robert Annette, was a captain in the Royal Irish Fusiliers. He fought at Waterloo, and as a British officer, he got free land in Upper Canada. They wanted to settle the area with loyal British officers, so he got 200 acres of land around what's now Watford, Ontario, just down the road from Newbury. Well, Philip Annett, my great-great-great-grandfather, who took up arms and headed off to overthrow the crown, he is buried in that cemetery, and it's the land of our ancestors, literally. So what better place for us to be to start building about the Republic there than on that sacred land of our ancestors? So that's July 1st. I hope to see all of you there. July 2nd, the next day, the official forming of the Southwest Ontario People's Assembly. That's a, a Republic Assembly. It's going to be near Woodstock, Ontario, which is to the east of London. It's the same 14th Congressional District. And uh, these congressional districts, by the way, are the building blocks of the New Republic. We organize our local and our district assemblies and finally send delegates to the National Congress. Imagine this as a parallel power alongside the crown, so-called crown fiction called Canada. We step out of that jurisdiction. You don't need to do paperwork to pull out of the system to nullify your capitalized, fictitious corporate name. You just take out citizenship in the Republic, and it's all automatically nullified. If you want more on that, write to us, Republic National Council at protonmail.com, republicofcanada.org. So that first gathering of the Southwest Ontario People's Assembly, July 2nd in the afternoon, the 12 original signatories to that assembly will be gathering to hold its first meeting. Now, you only need 12 people to sign a charter to form a local republic assembly. At that point, under the precedent of English common law and the trial by jury system, 12 people can establish the truth of something, like in a court trial. They can also establish a self-governing legislature, a law-making body that's like parliament in miniature, only better than parliament because we're not subject to one woman in London every oath of allegiance taken in Canada by a cop, a politician, or a judge is to Elizabeth Windsor and her descendants. Uh-uh. Instead, we're taking that oath to the people and our Republic Constitution, which, by the way, you can see at republicofcanada.org under Documents of the Republic. And that's the highest law, and that governs the local assembly. So 12 of you can sign a charter, you become a lawmaking body, you can start passing laws, and this is really important. We've done that already. On September 8th, 2020, our National Council of Local Assemblies passed a law banning all COVID measures. In other words, anywhere in Canada, any citizen holds up that law and says, I'm not bound by the COVID measures. And as a matter of fact, if you try to impose them on me or us, you can be arrested and tried in our Republic courts. We've used this successfully, this law. You can see that law, again, republicofcanada.org. Go to leaflets, and it's called the NCCLA, the National Council of Common Law Assemblies of the Republic. And you'll see that. You can use that law. That's one example of the laws that's passed. Uh, on the West Coast, one of our assemblies on Vancouver Island passed a law keeping all federal tax money in the community. We nullified the payment of taxes to the convicted criminal body known as the Crown of England. You're obligated and required under international law not to pay taxes to your government if they've committed genocide or covering up that crime. And Justin Trudeau admitted he did that. 
On June 4, 2019, he admitted publicly, quote, yes, it was genocide. Well, under the UN Convention on Genocide that Canada has signed and is bound to, a war crimes trial should have begun at that point, and Trudeau should be arrested and put on trial for admitting to genocide. So we're obligated, since they're getting away with it at their level, we can stop it by stop paying taxes. So we're, it's perfectly legal and necessary to withhold your federal taxes. Keep it in the community. Don't try it as an individual. System loves when you do that. They target you and make you an example of you, seize your bank accounts, and get everybody scared. No, we don't do this as individuals. We do it as members of the assembly. The assembly passes a law nullifying the federal tax money to the genocidal church and state in Canada, and we keep it on our community. We set up a trust fund and use that federal tax money to fund our local economy and our local businesses, our local government of the republic. That's how we do it. There's a way to do that. We're having workshops about that, training workshops, and like I say, write to Republic National Council at protonmail.com if you're interested in that. Here's another reason you should withhold federal taxes in Canada, because about 80% of the federal tax money goes to pay debts to foreign banks. <laughs> so why would you do that? The, the money for hospitals and roads and schools comes from local and county or provincial tax, not to the feds. The feds are total parasites. Pull the plug on them financially, folks. That's July 2nd. The next day, of course, July 3rd, there's our international call for the Republic of Alliance. The Republic Alliance is now consisted of people in 14 countries who are uniting across borders to set up similar sovereign common law republics in their countries now on four continents. So uh, there'll be a report on that, the first gathering of that Republic Alliance. And of course, what we're all looking forward to is when the convicted war criminal Jorge Bergoglio, a.k.a. Pope Francis, comes to Canada on July 24th to 30th, and where we have, standing by as we speak, indigenous and republic sheriffs waiting to arrest him when he comes to, to Edmonton, to Quebec City, and to Nunavut on Baffin Island. He's also scheduled, unofficially, to meet with the Chinese and Prince Rupert because the Vatican Bank is underwriting financially the Chinese takeover of Canada, thanks to Trudeau and, and Stephen Harper before him passing the Foreign Investment Protection Act, which allows China to buy up the entire country, no limit on Chinese investment, and even allows them to station their troops on Canadian soil. That blatant act of treason, you may have noticed, has never been challenged by any politician in Canada because they're all taking the oath of allegiance to that same corporate crown of England that's helping that huge sellout on treason. Another reason not to vote. Why sign away your authority to agents of a foreign power calling themselves members of parliament? So those are important events in July. And like I say, July 15th is a very important date of remembrance. And here's a brief summary before we're going to have a little break. And I'm going to share a reflection called The Outcast's Victory, a memory from Port Alberni, but also of, of spiritual significance, because this is a spiritual battle we're engaged in. And before we get to that, though, I'm going to give you kind of an overview, an eagle's eye view. And this is, of course, my name, Gano Geshue Gikido, the Ojibwe Anishinaabe term that means eagle strong voice, given to me in 2004 by my adopted grandfather, Louis Daniels of the Anishinaabek Nation. And this overview is of 30 years. And here's what happened. 1992. To 95, I was in Port Alberni working as a minister and covered these crimes, got thrown out, my family destroyed, and, black, and I faced permanent blacklisting and 
uh, marginalization for that coming out. 1996 to 98, I attempted to retrain at UBC, University of British Columbia, and came across the records of genocide in Canada and sparked the movement, the first movement on the West Coast and anywhere in Canada to expose these crimes of genocide in residential schools. June 1998, our first public tribunal in Vancouver that brought out these crimes and uh, sponsored by an international human rights group called IRAM. Totally blanked out of the Canadian media, of course. The year 2000, January 2000, we set up the first Truth Commission into Genocide in Canada, non-governmental, years before they set up their whitewash called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We set that up in 2000. 2004, we set up the Friends and Relatives of the Disappeared that began to unite survivors and occupied churches and hold protests all over Canada, Canada. 2007 and 8, we occupied churches and launched the, uh, or released our documentary film, Unrepentant, that forced the apology that same year, July 2008. The official whitewash began, and we were blocked out of the Canadian media, but nevertheless, at the same time, over in Europe, they heard of what we did. They invited me and others over to set up the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State in 2010, following a very fun thing I did in Rome, where uh, I conducted an exorcism outside the, the Vatican in October 2009 that literally caused a tornado that same day and um, forced out the truth for the first time of Pope Benedict's crimes that eventually forced our trial uh, and deposing of him. 2011 and 2012, we did the first dig at a mush hole. It was called the mush hole, the Mohawk School in Brantford, Ontario, run by the Anglican Church of England. And we showed that bones were found in the ground there. We produced those bones, had them forensically analyzed, and yes, they turned out to be children. That was blacked out of the Canadian media. Of course, I think only the local Mohawk community newspaper is the only one to report that finding of bones in October 2011. All of that information went into the International Common Law Court of Justice. Like I said, started July 15, 2012, that forced the resignation of Pope Benedict and led to a second trial of indicted and convicted the present Pope, Francis Jorge Bergoglio, of the same crimes. 2015, we began the Republic of Canada, and this program, Here We Stand, originally was called uh, Radio Free Canada, and we broadened it to take in an international audience all over the world. In the four years following that, I wrote 10 books about this, which you can see online at Amazon, but also murderbydecree.com, and it led to the present day and the founding of the Republic, Kind of a 30-year amazing history, which has led to the present time. And as they say, it shows you can't keep the truth down. You can crucify it, but the spirit lives on. I'm going to rest my voice, and we're going to hear this reflection. I did. It was part of a uh, sermon I gave, a series of sermons I've given for a group called the Covenanters, which is a, uh, I guess you could call it a radical spiritual movement that's uh, looking to pull the people out of the false churches the way we pull them out of the false corporate system. So we're going to listen to this, the Outcast Victory Now, and we'll be back in about 18 minutes. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice again. I'm giving you today a sermon for the third Sunday in Advent. That's the upcoming Sunday, December 15th, 2019. And this is part of an ongoing series called God's Revolution, a radical reading of Scripture for refugees from false religion. It's sponsored by the Covenanters, a separatist political and spiritual movement. Today's gospel is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. It's sometimes called Mary's Song of Praise. Uh, 
announcing the birth of Jesus, or the Magnificat. But I call today's sermon an outcast's victory, the world turned upside down. And when you read Mary's words, and you go back to the original Greek, once again you get a very different message from what you see printed in the Bible. Mary's words are, My soul grows and rejoices, for in my poverty I am chosen to do great things. Because of me, rulers are pulled down from their thrones and destroyed, and the lowly are raised up and exalted. The hunger are filled with all that is good, and the rich are banished and sent away empty. Well, all of this reminded me of a woman named Karen Connerly. Karen was someone who people tried not to notice, especially in church. She was poor and bedraggled. She was aboriginal and pregnant, and she was barely 16 years old. On the morning we met, Karen stood tentatively on the edge of our congregation, with a look of what I thought at the time was fear. In fact, she had arrived that day to overturn our world. At the time, I had been the minister of St. Andrew's United Church in Port Alberni for barely a year, and my life seemed wonderful, content and happy. Our Port Alberni congregation had tripled in size, and everyone seemed quite content. They were especially delighted on Sundays when my little infant daughter, Eleanor, used to toddle to the front of the service during my sermon and insist that I pick her up. So I'd stand there and preach with Eleanor in my arms, and that delighted especially the elderly ladies in the congregation. Now, at the time in my joy, I couldn't imagine how that was all about to change forever. Well, when Karen Connerly appeared that Sunday in our church in the fall of 1993, it didn't really alarm a lot of us at first because a few local Indians had already begun to attend the service. The local New Chelmuth Indians had begun to accept my invitation to come to church, but they were mostly affluent natives. They were tribal council people, and they kept it themselves, which pretty much suited my white parishioners just fine. As for me, I was feeling pretty proud of myself that I had been able to seat Indians alongside whites, which was the first in our church, and to have Indians and whites sitting together on Sundays. It was also a first anywhere in Port Alberni. Even though at the time, despite feeling that pride, I didn't know the conditions, the homegrown slaughter that my own church had perpetrated on the local natives that was responsible for that ongoing apartheid in our community. Well, Karen Connerly changed all of that. She did it in the way anyone does who is living on the edge and can't afford to hide the truth by being polite or considerate. Well, I knew something was afoot when Karen walked into the church and she didn't sit down with the rest of us after her opening hymn. She stood at the back of the sanctuary and just stared at me. One of the ushers went up and spoke to her, but she shook her head and, and barked something that made heads turn. I was weighing what to do when suddenly she began shuffling towards me at the front of the church, and even before her wailing began, I could see that she was crying. Her words rocked the church. She cried out, They killed my baby! They killed my little Charlie! Well, at that point, an usher named George Geddes got up, and he went over to the woman and actually put her in an arm lock. And the congregation exploded at that point in cries and shouts of outrage. Of course, I didn't know if they were outraged at what she was doing or what George was doing to her. Anyway, she tried to wrestle free, but another guy got up, grabbed her as well. And at that point, I just came down out of the pulpit. I hurried to them because I was dumbstruck that men that I thought I knew were perpetrating such sudden violence on this little Indian woman. I got the ushers to back off. 
I guided Karen to an empty pew, and I sat her down. And then I asked everyone around me to just sit down and calm down. Well, Karen then poured out her, her story to me. She described what had happened. And people sat in a stony silence while others got up and hurried out of the church. I was advised later by my board that I should have let George and his buddies manhandle the inconvenient Indian out of church so that the service could have continued in peace. But even then, as obtuse as I was, I knew that something else, something more important was at work than just church business as usual. Karen Connerly was a single mother. She lived on welfare in the midtown slum area of Porto Bernie that's still called the ghetto. It's where mostly Indians live. She'd been raped by her father and by uncles at the local Seychad Indian Reservation, and so she lived in hiding in the ghetto with her one-year-old, daughter, one-year-old son, Charlie, and her newborn daughter, the one who was not yet born in her womb. One day, little Charlie began to cough uncontrollably, and soon he turned blue and went into convulsions. So, in a panic, Karen carried him up to West Coast General Hospital and asked for their help. But the emergency room staff turned her away, turned Charlie away. I was appalled when I heard that. I was oblivious to the emptying pews around me. I was just focused on Karen. I said, what, you mean they wouldn't help him? She shook her head and said, they just let him die. The nurse said, they don't treat Indians. Well, after that, Karen sat with the corpse of her little boy at a bus stop near the hospital. She sat there till morning until a Mountie found her and actually arrested her, and then she was charged with manslaughter in the death of her own son. No one believed that it was the hospital that had killed Charlie. It's how they treat us here, Karen explained, after she calmed down a bit. It's always been that way for us, but they're not going to kill this one, she said, and she patted her swollen belly. Well, everything changed after that day. For me, especially, the thrones in my mind began to topple for me. I opened my heart and my door to many more of Karen's people and to the legions of other murdered Indian children that still lie in unmarked graves up at the United Church Alberni Indian Residential School. And that change spread from me and around me. It eventually began a political and a spiritual firestorm across Canada and across the world that's begun to overthrow a genocidal church and state system and turn everything upside down. Well, many centuries ago, there lived a woman a lot like Karen Connerly. She, too, was unwed, poor, outcast. She, too, was pregnant with a child and with a revolution, a new presence in the world that would make the last first and the first last. That woman's name, of course, was Mary, and she was chosen to bring Jesus the Christ into the world. Well, today's Gospel reading from Luke chapter 1 speaks of that revolution. It's often called the Magnificat. Unfortunately, the Christian Church has surrounded this tale with a lot of cultic imagery and belief about a so-called virgin mother of God. But Mary was not a virgin. A church, the Church only calls her that because of a Latin mistranslation of the Greek word for young woman. Very young woman. Because Karen was a teenager, so was Mary. They were likely very young. Mary was as poor and as human as Karen Connerly and as human as Jesus himself. Mary sung a praise that in today's gospel, we read in today's gospel reading, is like John the Baptist's announcement that we heard last week about the coming of Jesus. This song of praise is intended to prepare people for Christmas and the imagined Bethlehem birth narrative, but 
Once again, myth gets in the way of fact. Because as we know, Christmas has nothing to do with Christianity. December 25th was the Roman festival called Saturnalia, otherwise known as the time for reversal. For on that day, the slave owners would take off their robes and be the servant to their slaves, who would become the masters, for the day at least. That's no accident. The same great reversal, the turning of the world upside down, is at the core of Mary's song of praise. By naming Saturnalia as Jesus' birthday, the earliest Christians were saying, this is the consequence of the justice that Jesus has ushered into the world. All the rulers have pulled down, and the poor everywhere are raised. Now, pull down, that phrase in Greek, the Greek word for that is katareo, which means to utterly destroy, to obliterate so they're not there anymore. Rulers of one over another, the rule of one man over another, is obliterated. Well, clearly by that, it's obvious that a radically new world is coming into being for a purpose not so obvious at first. It's often been said that the best way to tame a revolutionary idea is to turn it into a religion. Well, that's certainly happened with Christianity, because if you merely worship someone, you don't have to take them seriously. And so the radical message of Jesus, of human equality and liberation, was quickly contained and mythologized by the wealthy corporate church of Rome into a cult ritual that really smothered the power of Jesus' words and message. The religious cult killed the memory and spirit of Jesus and made him a sacrificial atonement for so-called human sin, a heresy called Roman Catholicism, that like all worldly empires, creates shame and humiliation in people in order to control them. But that degrading spirit is the opposite of what we hear today in Mary's triumphant song of praise. Her song is imbued with a force that breaks apart oppression and elevates humanity above itself. It shows us that even in our loneliness, we are chosen to fulfill a higher purpose and remake the world according to divine justice. Well, not surprisingly, as you can imagine, I used to get in trouble with my staid theology professors about this gospel reading. Its revolutionary message was not obvious to them as it was to me. In fact, it frightened my profs because, like Jesus' overturning of the money chambers, changers in the Jerusalem temple, it was outside their experience and went against their perceived interests. Richard Leggett was a particularly fat theologian who taught me Bible studies, and he used to get mad at me. He'd say, no, no, these texts can't be taken literally. Mary didn't literally mean the rich when she said they were, they were sent away hungry. It's a spiritual allegory. She meant anyone who's inwardly impoverished and toppling rulers from their throne. Well, that's just a reference to Satan, not to earthly rulers. <laughs> well, I remember answering him. Well, then how about when Jesus says that a rich man can no more enter heaven than a camel can pass through the eye of a needle? Doesn't that mean it's impossible for the rich to go into heaven? <laughs> well, Big Dick smiled at me smugly, always quick with an answer, and he said, No, the eye of the needle refers to a little-known gate in Jerusalem. It's small, but you can still crawl through it if you try. How convenient. And on and on ad nauseum. Over the years, I've learned that belief for most Christians is determined not by their faith as much as by their salary and pension plan. Fortunately, Jesus didn't have either. Well, to illustrate all this and to go deeper in today's gospel message, let's examine its key words from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, if you want to follow along. Mary's first words in this passage are telling. 
she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Well, the words in Greek for soul is psyche, which means substance or breath. And the word for magnifies is megaluno, which means to declare or to make greater or better. My soul magnifies the Lord seems to be saying that Mary herself is somehow making God better. She's making God more than God. Mary is the subject of the sentence. God is the object. Mary is acting upon God and perhaps on the Godness within herself. But then the rest of the passage seems to reverse that. It has Mary saying that God is choosing her to bring down the mighty and elevate the poor despite their lowly status. But this is ultimately Mary's song, and the first words situate Mary as the cause of everything that follows. It's amazing. Well, let's avoid the temptation of interpreting that meaning to somehow cultify Mary into godlike status, as the Church of Rome has done. In fact, what's being described in Luke 1.46 is fully human and reveals the majesty of being fully human. If there is divine greatness in our world, it is because of the courage and the witness of the human soul. The mystery called God is taken flesh in every child born and awaits like a seed in us to flower into the life of one like Jesus, who by being fully human was fully divine. Well, when you think about it, it's an incredible revelation. It puts an end to religion and to the world as we know it, where we're expected to always defer to some other authority figure and wait upon salvation and meaning to be delivered by somebody else. That evolution away from that childhood notion into godness within, understanding of our wider place in the world, that evolution is evident when you simply read through the Bible, the way it progresses. I mean, isn't it evident from a complete reading of the Bible, that we are already in a direct and unmediated relationship and partnership with the great mystery that we call God. Because as it progresses, God, the idea, the impression of God, and perhaps the nature of God changes. He evolves from a vengeful, judgmental ruler into a state of unconditional love. Well, in the same way that that child matures from self-absorption and understanding, Our soul journey as a people is bringing to birth a better divinity through our willingness to accept the risk and the cost of being human, of existence. The mystery grows and evolves through us as we become more than ourselves. The ancient Greek writers and the person who authored the book of Job depict how man rises above God by persevering in the truth, whatever the cost, despite our mortality, despite our weakness. The Greek playwright Aeschylus wrote, The gods look with envy upon man because, although living for but a day, he surpasses the Olympians by still daring to love and to be valiant. It's beautiful. And it's all true. Like Karen Connerly and every woman who courageously brings forth life into a world of suffering and death, Mary sings in triumph because she knows that whatever comes, she's created a chance for all of us, the possibility of a new world where the old corruption is toppled. And perhaps her particular joy was to know that her own son would bring about that new way by lighting a fire and a sacred spirit in humanity that would never go out. Karen Connerly's New Chalmuth people have a story that once Christ visited their West Coast tribes many centuries before the whites ever appeared. 
The Christ, who came to them as a woman, warned the new Chalmuth that a pale people would come to their land carrying her name and words, but they would lack her inner spirit, her teachings. The teaching that said that all of God's creatures were to be loved and respected and treated equally. Well, the Christ told the Nuchelnath that the pale Christians had lost that soul, and so they were to welcome them and lead them back to her true way. The Nuchelnath tried to do so, and they were slaughtered for it, just like Jesus was. But as with him, that spirit cannot be killed by cannon fire or smallpox or by big money. That promise rests within all of us. It's immortal. It waits to be born fully human and remake our world by first turning upside down everything inside us and around us. Well, the week after I was fired by the United Church for uncovering its crimes against her people, Karen Carnerly came back. She appeared in my church one final time. She had heard what had happened to me and she came there to support me. But when she saw that I was no longer there in the pulpit, she stood up in the service and she declared, you're crucifying Kevin the, just like you did us, but God sees what you're doing and you're going to come down. And at that point, Karen again was grabbed and finally, like me, evicted from St. Andrew's United Church. And soon after that, she was found dead. But crucifixions have never ended anything. What Karen predicted has come true, for by her courage she has birthed it into being. The rulers are falling, the dead churches are collapsing, and the silenced victims are standing up and speaking and reclaiming the world. Well, I've seen this revolutionary miracle. I know it to be true because I've helped birth it into being. I pray for all of you that you may come to know and give life to the same Magnificat, the divine word taken flesh among us, to topple the ruler of this world and to bring to being a new creation. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Remember, live it. Thank you. And we're back. There you have it. Well, you know, it's all personal, it's all real, and so it isn't just another issue, of course, for me, and that's what makes it so real and enduring. You know, that part I remember so well when Karen first came into the church. I'd only been there about a year, and um, I had a choice at that point. Remember I mentioned that my church board told me that I should have just had her removed because it disrupted the normal business of the church, which seemed to have nothing to do with her her or Christ. And I had a choice to make. And people often say now, well, how could you have made that choice knowing that so much rested on that, that your job and your family and your future would be at stake? And of course, I didn't at the time. I was, like a lot of us, naively thought that if you do the right thing, you'll be rewarded for it as I was sitting atop a mound of corpses created by the very people who I was, whose humanity I was appealing to. But I chose in my own heart, from my own heart, I chose to not evict Karen, but keep the door open to her and many others. And over the years, people say, well, how have you survived all of this? And one of the answers I have for that is an experience I had in 19, when was it, 1987, I was training for the ministry, and I went on a fact-finding tour. Ironically, the United Church did these tours to Guatemala to investigate the genocide of natives in Guatemala, even though they were genociding their own natives back in Canada. 
And I met a uh, defrocked Catholic priest called Brother Fidel, which means faithful in Spanish. And he'd been thrown out of the church by the local bishops because, like me, he was getting too close to the Indians. He was taking literally what he read in the Bible. And um, there had been a lot of death threats against him. The local landowners didn't like the fact that he was working with the peasants and, and the Guatemalan refugees. And there had been death threats against him. And I remember asking him, well, have you ever been scared? Have you ever left? And he, Fidel said, yeah, a lot of times I get terrified. And I, I often think of leaving. As a matter of fact, once I got in my Land Rover Jeep and was about to leave, and then a little child came by, one of the starving kids, a Mayan Indian, um, the Kiche Indians, and I saw her, and I realized I can leave, but she can't. And then she gave me the courage to stay another day. And that's the secret, you know. This is not abstract. This is real. We look at the children among us who are going to die tomorrow if we don't act, and suddenly our fear is gone. That's how I endured over 30 years. That's how you can endure from your own fear when you get together in assemblies and you say, well, what's going to happen if we pass these laws? Are the mountains going to come and arrest us? If you can forget about that for a minute and look at what's going to happen if you don't take that step. Where are your children going to be in 5 or 10 or 20 years if you don't act? If they're suffering, it's because of our failure to act. Not because of what the so-called system does to them, because nothing is ever done to us without our approval and support. COVID wouldn't exist. These repressive laws wouldn't be there if we didn't go along with them. And that's our whole philosophy of the self-governance. You have to act for yourself, by and for yourself and your people. But first, you've got to feel their suffering. You've got to see how they open your heart to become more than yourself. Because that's the purpose of life, not to live for yourself, but find higher meaning and a higher purpose and cause, and then the people around you. And that's the, <laughs> I guess you could say that's the secret of immortality. That's the spirit in all of us that are going to be here when we're long, dead and gone, and our ashes. So that's part of what I wanted to leave with you today in preparation for the great coming events in, in July. And by the way, if you want to read more about that, you can read one of my books, Unbroken, My Life as a Truth Teller. You can get that at, like I mentioned, go to murderbydecree.com under all the books listed to see how to order it. And, of course, murderbydecree.com is where the entire evidence of this huge crime against humanity is posted, the hard evidence of the mass murder of Karen's people and many like her. And the murder that's still going on now, sponsored by the Chinese, happening as we speak all across northern B.C. And this is why our republic arose, because we cannot morally live under this regime anymore. Because if you do, and if you don't fight back, that blood is on your hands. We have that responsibility to cleanse ourselves by creating something new, but only when we're willing to take the blows inflicted on our victims, the ones whose murder we funded and supported consciously or unconsciously over the years. This is one of the ways... We turn that around by doing that. So finally, to remind you, you know, that summary I gave you earlier of the last 30 years, that's actually how, uh, you know, the whole republic came about. That's going to be the subject of not as another documentary film. In a couple of hours, it can encompass everything. We're actually working with independent media groups now to create a docu-series based on those 30 years, my experience and the development of this movement. This docu-series is going to be seven hours long and it's going to be released on our own media. And to remind you, that's not only this show 
on BBS Radio every Sunday at 3 p.m. here. But it's on the upcoming show called Kanata Rising. Kanata Rising. It'll start this Friday, July 1st, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern Time at not.tv slash live. You'll also be able to see it at facebook.com under, like, facebook.com slash tv dot. And you can read more of that. Write to us for Public National Council at ProtonMail.com. Write to me personally, AngelFire101 at ProtonMail.com. And here's the thing, folks. I never really hear it from a lot of you. Uh, I don't know if it's because this is yet just another issue or we're so inundated every day with other issues and our own fear and everything that we can't see the miracle standing at our own footstep, this miracle that's come about in Canada because of persistence over 30 years, and how the spirit of those who have died in the struggle carries on in us and gives us a power that no force on earth can overcome. I'm the living proof of that, and that's why I talk about my story, because it's an example of what one of us can do if we persist. If a hundred of us persisted like that over 30 years, the system would topple, but in a lot quicker time than 30 years. It'll happen in three years. We need clarity and unity, and a resolve to fight and never give up. And that's the trouble these days. People want three-minute solutions, three-minute sound bites, three-minute answers. There aren't any. This is a long-term struggle. Our grandchildren will be fighting this struggle, just as I, as the great-great-great-grandson of Philip Annett in southern Ontario, am still carrying on that struggle for the sovereign republic of Canada, which is a state of mind and spirit, as well as a political reality. So I want to thank you all for tuning in today and uh, stand by for more information on that docu-series on the history of our movement and yours truly. And one final thought to, to leave with all of you. It's, uh, I remember looking at Psalm 115, and it says in there how people who worship idols become that idol. And that's frankly what I see going on around us. We are becoming literally that machine that we have served for so long. We talk about the iPads and the transformation of human consciousness and the microchips and the COVID injections. We're literally being assimilated or eaten by the very machine that gave us our prosperity. Unless we break in every way from that machine, we're going to end up part of it, and there will not be a human race. We will not be here. We will not have grandchildren. It's a life-and-death battle, and folks, there's a difference, a great difference, between doing something out of interest or a good intention and doing it because your life depends on it. Our lives depend on this. RepublicofCanada.org, MurderByDecree.com, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. Stand by for more. Stay strong. Stay clear. We're going to end on a wonderful, uplifting song from the Italian resistance during World War II, Bella Ciao. I thank you all.